If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. KYW News Radio Original Podcasts. From KYW News Radio 1039 FM, this is Flashpoint. Shining light on the issues that matter to you in Philadelphia. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Hey now, welcome to Flashpoint. I'm Jay Scott Smith, and this week's episode focuses on Hispanic Heritage Month. And our newsmaker this week has dedicated his life to the health and well-being of Philadelphia's Latino immigrant population. We need to go back to our culture of health, of caring for each other, and getting vaccinated. And since the turn of the century, the city's Latino population has tripled, yet most of their issues often go unaddressed and unnoticed. We are the backbone of the labor force in this country. However, we do not own and we are not, don't have the same level of wealth. And of course, we have our Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week. That's all ahead on this week's episode of Flashpoint on KYW News Radio. Welcome back to Flashpoint. I'm Jay Scott Smith, and this week's episode is focused on Hispanic Heritage Month. And the city of Philadelphia has had a vibrant Latino population for decades, and since the turn of the century, it has grown. But there are a number of issues with the Latino or Hispanic community that most people either don't understand or don't recognize the scope of. Well, this week, we decided to talk about that with Jennifer Rodriguez the president of the Philadelphia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, as well as with Hector Ayala, the CEO of Hispanic Community Counseling Services. They sat down with us for this week's Flashpoint panel. This is Hispanic, I guess it's more so Hispanic Heritage Month. I've heard, I've heard it called a bunch of different things, honestly, over the last couple of weeks, as there seems to be kind of a conflict on almost what to call it. I guess, you know what? Help. Someone like me who may not quite understand, because there seems to be a lot of consternation and confusion over whether it's Hispanic, whether it's Latino, whether it's Latinx. It, help, help us understand the language that surrounds this. I can start first with Jennifer Rodriguez, who's a part of the Philadelphia Hispanic Chamber of Commerce. Help, help, help us out here a little <laughs> so, bit. So, Jay, yes, it's a topic of conversation amongst the different generations in the Latino community. Hispanic or Latino, um, you know, that is a term that was created uh, by organizations back in the 60s in collaboration with the U.S. government, uh, trying to really bring the Latino, the diverse Latino community together to have more power and more influence in decision making and resource allocation, you know, nationally, right? So it's a, it's, it has a marketing and a sales sort of background. And in terms of Latinx, right, I, it is a more, is a newer term where the, you know, Generation Z and the millennial generation have adopted. A lot of it has to do with Spanish as a language, has a lot of gender identification with words. So there's a movement towards really not being um, identified with certain gender. So this, the X is really about, it can be female, male, male, or or non-binary. We just did a special here on Flashpoint about mental health. And a lot of it was focusing on the black community and also how people manage their mental health. 
in terms of identification, there's such a vast diaspora amongst the Hispanic Latino population. And I know the one thing I noticed from a lot of the black diaspora, the African-American diaspora, and as well as Latinos, is we tend to have the Venn diagram crosses in a lot of ways where it comes to our, our the, the way we've dealt with certain issues in this country, our mental health, our physical health. So many of these things seem to cross lines. Hector, kind of go more into that as well as we talk about not just because uh, Hispanic heritage is more than just the basic things that so many people know. And, and I'm glad that, that you're saying that because, yes, our communities are more complex and more diverse of what people think. The Latinx concept, for example, I mean, this is something new. But if uh, you go across the United States, only 20%, 23% of Latinos have heard this before. So we have a big segment of our communities that they don't even identify with that concept of Latin X and, and what it means. We shared a lot of um, values and, and, and some perspectives on how we see the world. However, culture-wise and ethnic-wise, I mean, there are plenty of differences. We deal with families, how we deal with government, how we deal with, I mean, schools, environment, or how we see the world in, in general. There are many misconceptions about, I mean, what we eat, what we like, what we do, I mean, Cinco de Mayo is the perfect example of that. I mean, this is not a holiday in, in Mexico, but a holiday in the United States. Last year, we have President Trump celebrating the Hispanic month, and he had a bowl of, what, of taco, which is not an existing plate in any of our countries. So again, I mean, the, the media also plays a huge role in trying to define who we are, even when they ask us, I mean, yes, you're Latino, but are you white? Are you black? Are you brown? Are you Asian? Which, which, again, our countries, I'm not saying that racism doesn't exist, but I mean, the, it's more based on social divisions than the color of your skin. It is difficult to understand. I'm not saying that, I mean, you have segments of our communities and societies that they play that role and, and they, they support that role. But again, it, this is something that has done through either colonization and the inability of this country to understand who we are as a community. And to really understand parts of this or how really important this community is, I know just in the, I think it's in the last decade alone, there has been a massive amount of growth of the Latino population here in Philadelphia. It's grown by almost 30% in a decade. It's tripled since the turn of the century. And a lot of cities on the East Coast are very diverse, and it shows in just, I mean, you look at New York City, the diaspora that goes across New York City where so many Latin nations are represented. And I see that here in Philadelphia, too. There's so much of an influence here in Philadelphia. And Jennifer, I wanted to really ask you about that in terms of businesses, because being being the president of the Hispanic Chamber of Commerce, so much of the focus is also on the business community, small businesses, the 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 impact that such things as such as workforce development. What kind of a city is Philadelphia for the Latino community? There's good news and bad news. The good news is that Latinos are the most entrepreneurial demographic in the country. We are starting businesses at three times the national average. Latinas, female, are starting businesses at six times the national average. So really, but for the Latino community, the number of business starts in this country would be going down pretty steeply. Now, Philadelphia, as we have seen in the press in the last year or so, entrepreneurship is suffering in Philadelphia. Philadelphia is uh, pretty low in business starts. 
and it's remarkably low in the number of black and brown businesses that are being created and the size of the businesses is very very small so in philadelphia we have 12,000 latino owned businesses but only 4% of those businesses have employees oh wow and and the difference in revenue generation for these businesses compared to white businesses is pretty significant, right? Um, so we have a lot of work to do in order to ensure and provide the opportunities for Latino-owned businesses and, and, uh, and Black-owned and other diverse businesses to really scale up and reach their potential in terms of wealth creation, job creation, and such. And I know we came through a period where especially we had issues with the Great Recession and having to come back from that. And and we can't talk about anything these days without talking about the effects of the pandemic as well. How has the pandemic first and foremost had an effect on the business community, on the on the growth of this of of this very diverse population that we have? So, of course, we have been uh, impacted tremendously, uh, mostly because Latino businesses tend to be. Uh, businesses that face the consumer, which are the businesses that were most affected, right? Restaurants, hair salons, childcare centers, even healthcare uh, was affected. If you serve the public directly, you were impacted, you were closed down, you have restrictions in terms of social social distancing that, that remain until today in many ways, right? Um, so they were severely impacted. Now, what is also interesting is that Latinos have this sort of immigrant streak that grows through our veins and very resilient. So we have not seen as many shut down businesses as you would expect under normal circumstances. A lot of it has to do because the majority of businesses are self-employed or solo entrepreneurs. And what are they going to do? Stop working? They're not. So they may be severely strained, but they're still going on. And one of the things that we also know is that many of our business and our our entrepreneurs have been quick to adopt some technology. So they are selling through social platforms, uh, restaurants that didn't do takeout and delivery through the Grubhubs and, and Uber Eats are now doing it. And so what we also have seen are that the small restaurants have leveraged the delivery and takeout and have flipped the script and maybe doing, uh, some of them are doing even better than we're doing before the pandemic. But it has been incredibly disruptive, to say the least. And with something like this being as disruptive as it is to the workforce, Hector, when it comes to what Jennifer just laid out there, where, where you're struggling to keep money coming into your home, it's tough enough on anybody. What have you seen from people that have spoken to you since this pandemic began? What's the temperature of the community over the last year and a half? Great question. Well, I mean, um, there has been an exacerbation across the board of symptoms of depression, anxiety, and stress. The communities that that we serve, they started behind because it was not just COVID. I mean, before that, they were dealing with the opioid pandemic in the neighborhood. They were also dealing with hepatitis A and, and crime. When COVID it's the community. Now, I mean, everything amplifies and the problems become bigger than isolation. And even though that many Latino providers, I mean, took up on the, the challenge of putting together or creating infrastructures to support these patients throughout telehealth, that doesn't mean that the community was ready for that. I mean, you have many families that they don't have access to internet or even a smartphone to do these teleconference um, sessions. 
However, I have to say that the system, as well as clinicians, have been very uh, resourceful in finding ways in creating that access. It's hard also because it's too much coming down the pipes and not enough staff to deal with the amount of patients that we are receiving now. So it's been hard in that sense. Uh, Again, I mean, cases of domestic violence have increased gun violence. Uh, I mean, devastated communities due to the soft approach that the city decided to take up on, you know, addicts and, and how to deal with the opioid epidemic. So again, it's been the combination of, um, it's, it's like, like the perfect storm. And we are just seeing the tip of the iceberg. We have not seen yet the consequences. Uh, for example, we have children that they have born into this pandemic, meaning starting with the opioid epidemic, now COVID. So the only thing that they have seen, the only thing that they have been exposed to is this. We are concerned with, I mean, what are going to be the repercussions of COVID on these individuals? What are going to be the repercussions of the opioid epidemic and the level of trauma that has created in many communities? This will create a new challenge in how, I mean, we, we understand trauma, how we deal with trauma and how we treat trauma. I mean, this has been maybe one of the more traumatic periods of anybody's life. It's changed so many things from business to how we relate to our families. The tentacles of this thing, it's like an octopus. It's everywhere. It's not one thing that's been affected through this. I know that you both have have to go here, but I want to wrap this up by getting kind of a piece of each of your stories because, again, there's so many different stories to the Latin diaspora that I don't think people really understand. As quickly as you can tell it, Jennifer, I'll start with you first. Give us a little bit of your story and what led you to really – become more interested in business and led you down this particular path. And then Hector, I'm going to ask you the same thing. I am an export of Puerto Rico. So I came here to the U.S. uh, to do my undergraduate work, ended up in Philadelphia to do a master's at the University of Pennsylvania and became involved in economic development once I graduated. Um, And uh, Worked very closely as a board member at Asociación Puerto Riqueños en Marcha, IPM, one of the oldest serving Latino organizations in the community, and really fell in love with the community. I really, at the time, didn't know that there were so many Latinos in Philadelphia and that Latin, that the Puerto Rican community um, was such a, a stronghold and had such a, um, I think, a, a, a so was so present here. Um, but it was really disturbing to me at the time and continues to be that for the last 35 years, this community has been in deep poverty with a 40% poverty rate and really wanted to do something about it. Yeah, Latinos are the poorest demographic in the city of Philadelphia. And that, those numbers have not changed in 40 years. But what has changed is that we have doubled in size, right? Um, so really the problem has become even more pervasive in many ways. And seeing that the community has such resiliency, uh, that they are so creative, but that unfortunately the resources are not flowing to the community in the way that it flows to other communities and wanting to have an impact on that. And I think that Latinos in many ways are portrayed as, as individuals or as a group that takes more from society that they contribute. And it is actually not the point. Uh, it is not true. The fact is that we are starting, for example, businesses at three times the national average, that we are the backbone of the labor force in this country. However, we do not own at the same rate and we are not don't have the same level of wealth. And it is entirely within our hands and power to change the course. When you say that, the thing that really jumped out to me was is that the Latino community in this 
city is the poorest. And Philadelphia is already listed as one of the poor, maybe the poorest major city to, to be the poorest demographic in the poorest major city to have this. means that Latinos are in Philadelphia are amongst the poorest people in the whole nation. Right. It's stunning. It's stunning to really hear that and think about that. Hector, I would love to know more about your story, because as I mentioned before, on the on the I'm listening special. Yes. It's not often we see a lot of a lot of men of color leading in mental health. What is your story and what led you to become an advocate and and working toward helping people with their mental health? Like Jennifer, born and raised in Puerto Rico, came to the United States at the age of 22. Um, first generation moving into the United States. So you can imagine the cultural chart, language, and trying to, to understand a, a community that, I mean, up to a certain extent, I mean, was doing economically and financially worse than the place that I came in Puerto Rico. So um, psychology all, always was, I mean, uh, something that really interested me and understanding behavior, human nature and the brain. I mean, I always found it that fascinating. What it really led me into creating Hispanic Community Counseling Services and programs and the Latino Behavior Health Coalition was the poor quality of services that they were provided in the, uh, here in the city as well as in New Jersey. I remember having a conversation with a psychiatrist that we were consulting on the case. And I mean, I was concerned about the diagnosis and the medication that this child was receiving. And I still remember his words. He said, Michael, well, you're too young to understand this, but you cannot save the world. If the parents want this, if the school wants that, that's what we are going to give them. End of the story. I don't know, for me, it was so shocking that, that I said, I have to change the way that things are done. I have to change the way that people are being assessed in our community and how we can create accountability across the system. And, and that's what we uh, motivated. So 20 plus years later, in over 5,000 active cases that we have here at, 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 at my organization, what we focus and we value the most is quality of service, access to services. And it's not treating people, but serving people. And that's a difference between treating individuals and serving individuals. So our way of, of doing conducting therapy is not the traditional one. I mean, we have to take into consideration all the social determinants of health that affects dramatically the progress of our uh, communities. And it could be education, financing, housing, access to services, um, you name it. So what we have done is that we have adapted our services into a more multicultural, socially acceptable, and multilinguistic. And again, all those things are completely different, but you have to take them all into consideration in order to create services that are accommodated to the patients and not the other way around. We are embedded into the fabrics of our community. It is simply amazing to hear that. And Jennifer, Hector, thank you so much for coming on and sharing your insight with us. And hopefully we've helped people get a little bit better understanding and hopefully learned a little bit more about a very vital part of our community here in the city of Philadelphia. Thank you so much for joining us on Flashpoint this week. Thank you. Thank you. Flashpoint is sponsored by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. Register today at DonorsOne.org. Welcome to Flashpoint. I'm Jay Scott Smith, and this week's newsmaker is someone who has spent his life dedicating himself to helping the health and well-being of Philadelphia's Latino community. So during this Hispanic Heritage Month, 
we want to recognize Ignacio Yamasaki Bussey, the executive director of World Healthcare Infrastructures. The organization specifically provides counseling to Latino immigrant victims of crimes to help get their visas. KYW Sherrod A. Howard spoke with Ignacio this week for this week's episode of Flashpoint. In celebration of Hispanic Heritage Month, we're recognizing Yoshiaki Yamasaki, a Mexican-Japanese community leader here in Philly, who's putting the needs and well-being of his communities first. Yoshi, welcome to Flashpoint. Thank you so much for inviting me. Now, as executive director of World Healthcare Infrastructures, you're prioritizing the overall mental health of Latinx Philadelphians. Can you tell us about that? But we do from testing to medical to mental health, clothing banks, food delivery, meaning uh, COVID testing. We're getting licensed now to become a vaccination center. So we actually do diagnostics for HIV, hep C, syphilis, chlamydia, gonorrhea. We do medical services and we do mental health services. We actually serve a lot of the uh, migrant population, uh, victims of crime. And your background is much more layered in many areas of your life. I am Mexican, but I have a Japanese-Mexican name because my father was uh, Japanese. My mother's Mexican-French. By profession, I am a psychologist. So for me to keep uh, my pulse on earth, I try to continue doing some some direct services. And so I provide counseling to a lot of, of migrant people. I have more than 500 patients ongoing. I work six days a week. So I, that gives me a chance to see all my clients. So the work you do is specifically for the immigrant population but it's also for LGBTQ people. It's also for people with HIV. It's also for people who need mental health care. You do all of it. There's two groups that, I, that I'm passionate. One is the LGBT group and the other one is the migrant population. So we serve both populations. And the other part is the migrant part of it. We work with a lot of victims of crime, the majority. We do mental health evaluations for them. So when you're a victim of crime in Philadelphia or in the city or in, in the county, or in the United States overall. If you're a victim of crime in the United States and you're an immigrant, you could apply for special visas. And one of the most common one is the U visa. So to apply for the U visa, you actually need to have an evaluation of the damage that caused the crime that you suffer. So we actually help people to do the, the mental health evaluation that they have to submit with the police report, the, uh, a police affidavit, the application for immigration. So this evaluation helps the person to measure the impact, the emotional impact of the crime. And in doing all of that, you help them get back on their feet and acclimated to a new home after what could be considered one of the largest traumas of their lives. Absolutely. And we, we do work with some of the clients that they have developed the Ulysses syndrome that we're trying to work with the PTSD, with the post-traumatic stress disorder, all this kind of stuff and help them normalize their lives. And from something really bad that they experience to get something good, like normalize their paper. And because of your background, you tend to relate to this particular population not only well enough to connect, but to also see them in a city that sometimes they feel doesn't always see them. You got that. You got that right. Absolutely. You actually need to have that kind of commitment to the people that you care for, because this is the people that you come from. And so that's who I am. Meaning, I'm a Latino, Japanese, born and raised in Mexico City, and then coming to Philly because I, I went to grad school at Penn and staying here, serving the community that I was born from. And in many ways, you're kind of boots on the ground. And what does doing this work mean to you personally? I think it's the most important thing that you can do when you have a position like you. I'm the executive director of an organization that has 30 years of existence. And for me, it was like, I didn't want to part in order to do good interventions in the community, you need to keep yourself 
uh, in the community. And that means that sometimes you need to have your ear in the ground. And for me to hear those difficult challenges that we're facing, I needed to stay in contact with my clients. I need to stay in contact with patients. I need to stay in contact with people that were telling me I was raped. I was kidnapped. I was tortured. So it, it becomes a need as a human being to be able to go in and out into these situations of pain and come out and try to bring the person back to health and back to normalcy and try to have a normal life. Now, what about COVID? We go into a pandemic and you're already doing so much work with HIV and other things. So how are you managing to navigate the pandemic and still continue to do the work that you're already doing? You're asking one of the toughest questions because I was talking to my one, my, my brother and he said, you, uh, hey brother, did you realize that you jumped from HIV from a 30-year-old pandemic into another one? And I'm like, uh, no, until you told me. <laughs> <laughs> Is it like not realizing how high you are until you look down? Exactly. So it was horrible because it made me realize that we had quite a few lessons learned from HIV and we had to take that advantage of what we knew and to put it in practice into a new pandemic that was taking us completely and by surprise. No? How do we provide the basics? So we decided to open up our little food bank and create a massive food distribution center through COVID. So we had to reduce our staff to the minimum because there was no testing, there was nothing, there was just COVID. So we reduced the, the people at the office so we wanted to be safe and a bare bone skeleton crew stayed because we had to distribute medication. We doubled the work. We doubled the work, but we doubled also the amount of people that we were serving. So we had to buy the bullet and we get a truck of thousands of boxes delivered. <laughs> we needed to repackage everything. And there's four of us doing this <laughs> repackaging of thousands of boxes. And the people that from our clients that had COVID, that they were at home, they were like, uh, we don't have food, we don't have medication. So we were dropping off the food outside their home and calling them from the pharmacy and said, I'm getting you these drops, this this cough medication, this leave, this Tylenol, these things. We had to combine our efforts and said, okay, we continue to do prep, we continue to do medication. I continue to give condoms out. I said, some people do not care that there's COVID out there. Let's keep giving condoms out. I say, why? Because everybody should both to be quarantined. I say, yeah, that's what we're supposed to be, but that's not the reality. So you can actually continue breathing in at your home with this disease. So you guys kind of made something out of nothing at a really difficult time for everybody, but you made it work. I get a little emotional. It was kind of that titanic kind of effort and we continue doing it but there were like more than thousand families that we were able to provide food every week and so it's just uh we had to do it and we never stopped the service so we continue to distribute medications to more than 300 patients with hiv people that had they been on on prep for example that they were protecting themselves from hiv we continue providing with the prep hiv pandemic did not end because of covid so during hispanic heritage month what's your message get vaccinated get vaccinated don't let crazy stuff into your into your life we come from a society where we never questioned vaccination because it was a lifesaver throughout our years. Meaning kids, in order to go to school, they need to bring the card of vaccination. Why are we making this big oofla about a vaccine that is saving lives? And 
we need to let know our people that that hasn't changed. We're still saving lives with a vaccine. Nos pertenece. Tenemos que regresar a eso. Regresar a nuestros raíces de decir, hay que cuidarnos, hay que ponernos la vacuna. And I say that in, in, in Spanish so people understand that we need to go back to our culture of health, of caring for each other and getting vaccinated. It's Hispanic Heritage Month. What do you have to say to your community? Love yourself, love your culture, love your people, love your family. Yes, so love more. Hey, what better message to go out on than love right here? Thank you so much, Yoshi, for joining us. It's my pleasure. If you're considering home care for yourself or a loved one, Patriot Home Care makes it easy with a caring and compassionate staff. Don't be overwhelmed by all the choices. Let Patriot Home Care help. Patriot Home Care is growing with offices throughout Philadelphia and now in Delaware. Patriot is accepting caregivers and new clients virtually as well. At Patriot, you will love what you do and feel rewarded by taking care of people who need your help. Patriot also offers some of the area's best pay, benefits, and a $600 sign-on bonus to new caregivers. Visit PatriotHomeCare.org. The Philly Rising Changemaker of the Week is presented by Patriot HomeCare. KYW's Antoinette Lee here with this week's Philly Rising Changemaker. This week's story is about a Baltimore police officer from North Philadelphia giving back to his community in a simple way. It's called Police and Sneaks, and the man behind the nonprofit is hoping to expand it across the Northeast, especially to his hometown roots here in Philly. Detective Jalik Mathis, welcome to Flashpoint. Now tell us how you got started with Police and Sneaks. I'm originally from Philadelphia. I've been in Philadelphia my whole life. Around 2018, I left corrections and I went to Baltimore City to be a part of the police department. I had heard about like the riots with Freddie Gray and they were really looking for people to join the police department. So their process was a little faster than other departments. So I've been there since 2018 and I've always, I found uh, this young lady and her mother and a young a young man. And, they, and of course, when people see the police walk up to them, they're like, oh man, what did I do? I explained to them, I was like, Hey, if you didn't mind, I would love to buy him any pair of sneakers he would like out of Foot Locker. And they thought it was like a joke at first. They was like, this now, no, this is a joke. Like, what's going on? Right. And I'm like, no, I'm serious. So we went inside the Foot Locker. Me and a young man, we bought, he chose a pair of sneakers. We took a picture together. And just that moment, the lady ended up like finding me on social media and was like, this is a blessing. You know, I'm currently going through stuff and I've, I've had bad experience with the police. And we were there to buy him a pair of sneakers. And he got like a pair of Nikes around a hundred bucks. She was so grateful. And she said really changes her perspective a little on police and especially his perspective. So after that, I was like, you know what? I'm going to do this every time I get paid. Right. So through buying these sneakers, you're really kind of fostering a relationship with the community and law enforcement, right? Right. So they will remember this experience. Hey, two pair. I know the cops, the police bought me two pairs of Jordans that, you know, my parents probably couldn't afford to get me. In. And we get so much negative press, especially with the George Floyd situation last year, Breonna Taylor. And I'm like, you know what? We need to do something that puts us in a positive light, show them that 99% of police are good, right? I want kids to be able to be like, oh, hey, and wave to the police again when they see us. With us, the police department, we have a lot of work to do, right? We have a lot of relationships. We have to rebuild it, but uh, I'm interested in bringing it to Philly. I'm interested in bringing it to New Jersey, New York, everywhere, because it's such a positive thing for police and we're helping people at the same time and it's consistently. 
So tell us how people can find out more about Police and Sneaks and maybe get involved. So we have policeandsneaks.com. That's our website. We have Police and Sneaks, which is our Instagram page, where you can go there and you can see all of the kids actually so far that we've bought sneakers for, some of the programs we've done. Or you can even buy a pair of sneakers yourself, take a picture with the kid and send it to us. And we'll post it up and we'll hashtag Police and Sneaks, really make it like a viral thing, get it moving. If you know someone making a difference in your community, let us know. We can highlight them as our next Philly Rising Changemaker. You can tweet me your ideas at A.R. Lee on air. That's A-R-L-E-E on air. And there you have it. Another episode of Flashpoint in the books. We want to thank you, as always, for supporting the show. Remember, the podcast version of this show will be coming up real soon. You can look for that on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts. And remember, you can always find us every Saturday night at 9.30 p.m. and Sunday morning at 8.30 a.m. So for Sheridan Howard, Antoinette Lee, and of course, our super producer, Ariane Fulcher, my name's Jay Scott Smith telling you to take care of yourself. God bless. Always dare to be different. And remember, hope, nah, it's still not a strategy. We'll get at you next week. Flashpoint is a production of KYW News Radio 1039 FM. For more, go to KYWnewsradio.com slash Flashpoint and subscribe to the Flashpoint Podcast wherever you get your shows. Presented by the Gift of Life Donor Program. Organ donors save lives. 